Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, a first-hand account of 1830s Florida in the book An Englishman in the Seminole War. He was befriended by several of the doctors, and so he became very useful to the army in St. Augustine and then, of course, eventually in the Seminole War. We'll discuss camp landing in the 1940s, The construction problems encountered included the land itself, its remote location, the need to construct roads and rail lines to bring in construction materials, and the demand for 25,000 workers. And we'll visit the Cotton Club in Gainesville. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. When the unaccompanied 16-year-old John Bemrose came to America from England in 1831, he would have recognized this melody as the British national anthem, God Save the King, but not the brand new American lyrics by Samuel Francis Smith. The book, An Englishman in the Seminole War, a memoir based upon the letters of John Bemrose, presents a first-hand account of the people and places of the period available to the public for the first time. Randall J. Agostini is the great-great-grandson of John Bemrose and editor of the book. Agostini says that Bemrose had a specific purpose in mind when writing his letters. It seems as though that he had an errant son, one of the, a, a child that was uh, probably more rebellious. And he, I think, was trying to figure out a way how he could communicate with this boy in a way that was uh, kind of uh, exciting and also uh, neutral. And so he used his experiences in uh, that uh, the days that he spent in the United States in the Army uh, as a vehicle to communicate a lot of his thoughts as to uh, what a person should be and act and that sort of thing. And I think that was his main purpose. In fact, I think that it resonated so well in the family that the other children also wanted copies of the letters he wrote. Randall Agostini was born in Trinidad, grew up in England, served in the British Army, and returned to Trinidad where he had a career as a commercial pilot. He emigrated to the U.S. in 1987 and now lives in Florida. Agostini first became aware of the letters of John Bemrose as a child when he and his two sisters lived with their grandparents in England. My grandmother uh, heard about uh, these letters through her sister, uh, who lived in Rochester, and uh, her name was Beatrice. And uh, she asked her husband, my grandfather, George, to if she could get a copy of this, and he decided to make it into a book. So he had the, uh, the 60 letters typewritten, 
and uh, put in a book, which uh, I eventually inherited because uh, when my grandmother died, he gave the book to uh, my mother, and then my mother gave it to me as a reward for writing her memoirs. Agostini has edited the 60 letters of John Bemrose into a compelling narrative that reads like a novel. I have to thank the technology because uh, when I received uh, the letters or when I received the book, it was at a time where computers, uh, home computers, were now starting to develop. And so what I was able to do with the advantage that uh, John Bemrose didn't have or other authors of his time did not have was that uh, you could pretty much start anywhere with the material that I had and just develop it uh, from that. And you had tools like you could find words, you know, and see how they interrelated uh, one to another. You could find mistakes that way. And I I grew to respect uh, authors of the, especially of the 18th century and before writing uh, books because how they they must have been brilliant to remember everything they wanted to put down at the end of the book and how it correlated to what was in the beginning of the book, which was a computer, of course, uh, makes that a very, very easy process. Thanks to Agostini's editing, the writing of John Bemrose is no longer in letter form. His story is now presented as a memoir. Well, I actually did start uh, from the beginning, and uh, I would take the first letter, and I patterned the uh, chapters per letter, which I eventually changed uh, uh, for this particular book. And I just went through them one by one. And uh, the story itself sort of developed on its own because I found that they may have been duplications of the same story in different letters, And often it was seen by John from a different perspective, and I found that very interesting. And so the the composite picture of a particular story was even more interesting as a result. For more than 150 years, John Bemrose's experiences in Florida during the Seminole War was only read by his family members and descendants. Eventually, Agostini realized that the public might find the story to be engaging and informative. It was really written for my family. You know, we're all progeny of him. And so that was really what it was for. I had originally copied the book, uh, Xeroxed the book, and I had sent copies uh, all over the world to the extended family of my mother. And uh, there were over 30. And uh, that generated a lot of interest. But uh, because of the quality of the copy and also the difficulty of reading the language uh, the way it was written at that time. It was not an interesting read as what I tried to make it into as, as a real story that followed one day upon the next. Agostini has succeeded in transforming the letters into a compelling work accessible to modern readers. John Bemrose came to America from England in 1831 as an unaccompanied 16-year-old. Although he was too young to serve in the United States Army, he was accepted anyway. He was a young man, and he had the misfortune. At the time, he was an apprentice. Uh, We would call him a druggist there. They would call him a chemist in England. And he was an apprentice chemist uh, and very happy working there. But uh, there was a person who he worked with 
who looked as though he befriended him, was really his enemy. And as a result, uh, John Bemrose uh, ran away from that institution. And I don't think that he knew exactly what he was going to do. He was just running away from a situation, and he found himself in Liverpool, and uh, he had this excitement of seeing the ships and beginning to have this wanderlust of a young man, and he sold the great coat that his father had given him to pay for the voyage to come to America. And he had very little money left uh, with him uh, after paying for the passage. So he landed up in New York, and eventually he uh, walked to Philadelphia. Uh, He walked through New Jersey, and he ran out of money, and he became completely dependent upon other people. And uh, so he realized it was, uh, he, he was able to join. First of all, he tried the Navy, and then he, he subsequently joined the Army because I think they were paying a little bit more up front. Bemrose documented his life as a dedicated hospital steward both before and during the Second Seminole War. His detailed writing tells us a lot about medical practices in 1830s Florida. This was, I think, a huge accident. Uh, What happened was the hospital in St. Augustine needed uh, professional people. And the training that he had received, although he thought it was a more provisional uh, sort of training, had a great deal more expertise. But the other thing that happened to him is that he was befriended by several of the doctors And so he became very useful to the army in St. Augustine and then, of course, eventually in the Seminole War. Anyone interested in Florida history will find Bemrose's descriptions of 19th century St. Augustine, Jacksonville, Micanopy, and other locations intriguing. Randall Agostini. Oh, yes. He had to travel. The army made him travel around Florida uh, quite extensively in those days, uh, mainly by boat because uh, they didn't have a road system as we know it now. Bemrose also shares his memories of walking through the Florida wilderness and personal observations of people who are now historic figures, including Osceola and Charles Bulow. The Seminole War, in fact, was the training ground for a lot of important officers in the Civil War. And they were junior officers during the Seminole War, and they became important people in the Civil War. And, of course, he remembered those people at the time when he started to write his letters. John Bemrose wrote his letters between 1863 and 1866, 30 years after the events he's describing in Florida. In a separate essay at the end of the book, Bemrose offers his perspective on the American Civil War, which is happening as he reflects upon his experiences in the Seminole War. In his first-hand account, Bemrose talks about people of diverse nationalities and backgrounds that he encounters, and he's most impressed with enslaved people. Yes, I think this was a big uh, difference for him. England, there was no real slavery in England. Britain had its slaves in its colonies. And so uh, an English boy coming to America, this is where he would come across slavery for the first time. And so it was uh, a society that he was not used to. And it was easy to see, especially in the South, how uh, it it became very graphic to him as to how these people uh, had to live and work. 
Randall Agostini feels as if he came to know his great-great-grandfather by editing his memoir. He was very observant in, a, in almost a philosophical way, and he was able to, uh, to transfer uh, those thoughts uh, onto paper, uh, which uh, we uh, are the beneficiaries of. The other thing is that I found it interesting how he was a very religious person in his themes and uh, how he introduced uh, his faith, although he wasn't a practicing Christian, how he introduced his Christianity into his daily life. Randall J. Agostini is editor of the book An Englishman in the Seminole War, a memoir based upon the letters of John Bemrose, published by the Florida Historical Society Press. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org, where you can register for the Florida Historical Society 2022 Public History Forum and the 33rd Annual Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings Society Conference, May 19th through 21st in Gainesville. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Connie Lester, Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. Connie, the landscape of Florida changed significantly with the outbreak of World War II, but people who remember those changes are rapidly decreasing in number. Yes, the end of the war occurred more than 75 years ago. Most of those who fought are gone, and those who remember the war but were too young for service are now in their 80s and 90s. The Florida Historical Quarterly has published two articles on one artifact of the war that played an important role in the lives of some 800,000 men and figured in the history of the invasions on Normandy Beach and the south of France. That artifact was Camp Blanding, an Army training post constructed in Clay County, not far from the town of Stark. George E. Cressman, Jr., president of Camp Blanding Museum Association and senior historian and docent at the museum, wrote two articles for the FHQ, one on the 3,000-bed military hospital on the site and one on the construction of Camp Blanding. His research on both projects is detailed and very complete, and his writing is supplemented with photographs held by the museum and by Florida memory. In 1939, Americans watched as war spread across Europe again, a scant 20 years since the end of the previous war to end all wars. Although most Americans professed no desire to fight again in what they perceived as Europe's problem, Preparedness became the official position of the nation's military. 
Jacksonville's Deep Harbor was identified as a site for a southern naval port, and both residents of the city and military officials viewed Black Point as a site for a potential naval air station. However, Camp Foster, the training camp for the Florida National Guard, occupied the land. Negotiations to transfer the land to the Navy and construct a new training camp led to the creation of Camp Blanding in Clay County. Connie, constructing a new training facility in what was an isolated part of Florida must have been quite an undertaking. Indeed it was. The timeline set by the military called for the completion of the camp within three months. Although a significant amount of the work had been done within the time frame, the camp was not completed until late 1941. A brief recitation of the requirements for the camp demonstrates the impossibility of the timeline. The camp would ultimately cover some 170,000 acres of land with access to an additional 560,000 acres of land in the Ocala and Osceola National Forests for maneuvers. Kingsley Lake would be used for training and for recreational purposes. The original plan called for the construction of 10,254 buildings, including a 2,000-bed hospital, later expanded to 3,000 beds, two laundries, barracks, mess halls, service clubs, theaters, target ranges, post offices, a fuel storage plant, a coal storage plant, bakery, two incinerators, an electrical power system, telephone system, water and sewer systems, roads, walks, railroad track facilities, post exchanges, and hundreds of pyramidal army tents. Such a massive undertaking required a construction company with experience managing large-scale projects. The $10 million contract went to the New York firm Sterrett Brothers and Eakin, which had most recently built the Empire State Building, completing the project early and under budget. That would not be the case for the construction of Camp Blanding. The construction problems encountered included the land itself, its remote location, the need to construct roads and rail lines to bring in construction materials, and the demand for 25,000 workers. The cost rose from the initial estimation of $10 million to $27 million and elicited a congressional investigation. First pushed by Michigan Representative Albert J. Engel, the investigation by the Senate subcommittee, chaired by Harry S. Truman, provided a more extensive investigation. In August 1941, the committee issued its report, which concluded that, quote, lack of adequate plans, end quote, had caused the cost overruns and laid the primary blame on the general staff. Throughout the project, Sterrett Brothers and Eakin encountered problems with labor. The 2,000 workers they brought from New York were highly skilled union members. Southern workers were less skilled and opposed to unionization. Nevertheless, the job remained unionized and new workers were required to join. The construction company overcame the problems associated with unskilled labor through a series of innovations that included the use of prefabrication techniques. Once the system was fully in place, a mess hall could be assembled in 30 to 45 minutes. How soon did troops begin arriving at Camp Landing? 
Although the camp was by no means complete, the first troops, the 31st Infantry Division, arrived in December 1940 as scheduled. The weather was miserable, cold and wet, and the troops immediately erected tents on Hutment platforms. Joe Starnes, an officer in the 31st and a member of the U.S. House of Representatives from Alabama, commented, quote, A regiment of 1,815 men was moved in with not a single kitchen, latrine, or bathhouse available. This occurred in December in pouring rain. Only the grace of the Almighty God prevented an epidemic, end quote. After that first division arrived, many others followed. The 1st, 29th, 30th, 31st, 36th, 43rd, 63rd, 66th, and 79th, and the 508th Parachute Infantry Regiment, all trained at Camp Blanding. The 1st and the 29th spearheaded the Normandy invasion, and the 36th was a spearhead unit in the southern France invasion. Training was often improvised and primitive. Conditions at the camp remained difficult in the heat, humidity, and mosquito-infested conditions of Florida, and the remote location of the camp produced housing problems during construction and recreational issues once soldiers began to arrive. In addition to being a training facility, Camp Blanding housed prisoner of war camps, served as an induction center for Florida volunteers and draftees, and housed the largest hospital in Florida to accommodate wounded evacuated from the battle. The facility was largely dismantled after the war, but still serves as a training facility for the Florida National Guard and houses the Camp Blanding Museum. An important history to document and remember. Thanks, Connie. You're welcome. Connie Lester is Associate Professor of History at the University of Central Florida, Director of the Riches Digital Archiving Project, and Editor of the Florida Historical Quarterly. This is Florida Frontiers. The Cotton Club in Harlem, New York was well known, but there was also a cotton club in Gainesville, Florida. Holly Baker has more. During the time of racial segregation, the Cotton Club in Gainesville, Florida was a popular venue for African-American entertainers on the Chitlin circuit. Vivian Filer is the founder and chair of the board of the Cotton Club Museum and Cultural Center. Whenever I have a chance to talk about the history of the Cotton Club, I like to start with the building itself, which is a building that was built by the soldiers, which is an important piece of its history. And for World War II, the soldiers were called to Camp Blanding in Stark, Florida. They cut the trees, milled the lumber, and built all of those buildings on the camp at the time. This building is one of those structures. So I always like to give that kind of reverence to the fact that it represents the work of those soldiers in World War II. When the war ended and these buildings were sold off to Floridians or whoever would agree to move them off the campus, 
uh, they could buy them for a dollar. It was their responsibility to move them to wherever. So Gainesville is filled with those buildings. They're all over Florida, actually. You can find them different places. When Camp Blanding closed in 1946, at the end of World War II, the building that would soon become the Cotton Club was one of 3,000 that was put up for sale. William and Eunice Perryman, owners of a grocery store in Gainesville's Spring Hill community, bought the building and had it moved from Stark to a lot near their store to become the Perry Theater. This particular building was purchased by two brothers. They had a store in Gainesville on the corner of Southeast 8th, what is now Southeast 8th Street and 7th Avenue. But they bought this building and brought it to the east side of town, which is predominantly African-American, but there was no theater there. So they brought it over to Gainesville from Stark, Florida, some, I guess, some 50 miles away, so that it would be opened as a theater. It did open as a theater, the Perry Theater. It closed as a theater uh, relatively quickly. And Sarah McKnight, who I considered to be an exciting entrepreneur, who was way before her time, she owned several businesses in Gainesville. And she purchased this building so that she could make it into a nightclub for African-Americans because at that time, obviously, it was segregation and Jim Crow, and we were not allowed into big clubs. By 1951, the Cotton Club was attracting talented musicians who were touring on the Chitlin circuit, such as James Brown, B.B. King, Bo Diddley, and Ray Charles. These bands came through. She opened the building as a big bands club, named it for the Cotton Club in Harlem. And that's where its name came from. So as bands came through, they were not yet famous bands. They were good and they went on to be famous, but they traveled on something called the Chitlin Circuit. And the Chitlin Circuit was something that existed all over the East, all over the Southeast, wherever segregation was, the Chitlin Circuit was a part. It's just that there were different places on the Chitlin Circuit itself. But the mainstay of that usually was a hotel. Band players had some place to stay, to live, during the time they were in a certain area. But they weren't always right there in the same city. And Gainesville became then a place for them to stay because it housed the Dunbar Hotel. The Dunbar Hotel, the only black hotel in Gainesville, was a popular accommodation for performers on the Chitlin circuit. By the time that the Cotton Club building closed down in 1959, it was known as the Blue Note Club. The Blue Note Club never became as popular as the Cotton Club. By then, their jukebox had mostly replaced the live musical performances. After the Blue Note Club ended, the building was purchased and used as a warehouse for the Babcock Furniture Company until 1970. It remained vacant for several decades until 1995 when the Cotton Club building, along with four other buildings on the site, was sold to Mount Olive African Methodist Episcopal Church. Vivian Filer, a longtime member of the church, made it her mission to turn the Cotton Club into a museum and cultural center. In 2019, that dream became a reality. Today, the Cotton Club Museum and Cultural Center preserves and highlights African-American history and culture through art exhibits, concerts, educational programs, and other community services. History begins at home. You know, it's broad, and we go back to Africa, and all of that is, is wonderful and, and near and dear to my heart. And wherever it fits, we will include it. But we want people to know they have heroes and sheroes right here in Gainesville. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa.
You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week and anytime online at myfloridahistory.org. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Holly Baker and Connie Lester. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.